You can be seated. A few weeks back, we started a new sermon series called Foundations, Renewing Minds from the Enemy's Lies. What we've been trying to do is identify different lies that our spiritual enemy is constantly lobbing our way and that we are prone to believe and trying to combat those lies with the truth of the Word of God. The first two lies we've looked at first, we saw the lie that getting the gospel right is really not that big of a deal. What we saw is that when we rightly understand the grace of God, it will help us to stay out of the ditches of legalism, trusting in our works to save us, but also the ditch of license, thinking that grace gives us permission, a license to sin. That last week we saw a second lie, and that's the lie that this world and that the things God has made will fully and truly satisfy our souls. We saw that the root of all sin is believing that the gifts of God are more satisfying than God Himself. And yet the gospel empowers us to delight in God, to uproot the idols in our hearts, and to replace them with righteousness and with truth. But what truth are we called to replace those lies with? I hope you know the answer is the truth of the Scriptures, the truth of God's Word. And yet we live in a world that since Genesis 3 has doubted the Word of God, questioned it, ignored it, mocked it, and disobeyed it. Ever since Satan asked in the garden that fateful question, did God actually say? That was his tactic back then. And it is still his tactic today. So this morning on Gideon Sunday, when we just heard about an awesome ministry that puts the powerful and effective Word of God in every nation on earth, we want to address a third lie, and that's simply this. The lie that the Bible is not really all that important. The lie that the Bible's not that important. And what I want to do this morning with our time is two things. First, I want to simply make some observations from the verses that Mr. Mike just read. Eleven observations. It's just going to be an observation, though, not eleven points for those who are looking at their watches. Eleven observations. And then after that, I want to turn and try to unpack some different implications, some different applications of those things that the text shows us. So first, notice with me briefly 11 observations from the text. The first is this, Scripture has to be taught and learned. Verse 14 says, Timothy, continue in what you have learned. Remember what you have been taught, which simply means this, you can put the Bible under your pillow and sleep at night, but it's not going to get in there unless somebody teaches it and you invest in it. The Bible has to be taught and learned. Second observation, Scripture has to be believed by 
faith. Verse 14, Paul says, continue in what you have firmly believed. It can't just be facts in your head. It's got to be truths that you trust in. Truths that you trust in and then transform you. Third, we see that Scripture is clear enough for children to understand. We've got kids in the room. It's Kids Sunday, right? And then we've got other kids that are in here every week. And then we've got teenagers. And a lot of times this big book seems to be so arcane and ancient and hard for us to wrap our heads around. And yet Paul says to Timothy that it is clear enough for kids to understand. From childhood, verse 15 says, you are acquainted with the sacred writings. Kids, don't think that the book's too big and hard to understand. It's clear enough that a child can be saved by the truths within. And it's deep enough that no professor or expert could ever fully mine its depths. Fourth observation, that Scripture is holy and sacred. Verse 15 says, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, with the holy writings. These are the words of our holy God and what Scripture is, is a reflection of His character and purposes. Because God is holy and this is His Word, His Word is holy, inspired, important, set apart. Fifth, Scripture is given to us in written form. Verse 15 says, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. There was a time in history where they were orally given, and yet now they are written down for our instruction. God inspired the apostles and prophets, and the Word of God has been written. It has been translated into our languages so we can know the mind and heart of God. Sixth, Scripture makes us wise for salvation through Jesus. Verse 15 says, it makes you wise for salvation. If you want to be saved, you've got to trust in Jesus. Where do you find Jesus? In the Scriptures. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God that points us to the Son of God and applies it to our hearts so that we are changed. It makes us wise for salvation. Seventh, Scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by Him. Verse 16 says, This isn't merely the words of the original authors, the prophets and apostles. These are the words of God, the words of the Almighty King and Creator of the universe are sitting in your lap this morning. That should blow us away. Scripture is inspired by God. Eight, Scripture instructs us, verse 16 says, it is profitable for teaching. When we fell away from God, it wasn't just our actions and words, but also our minds that are fallen and need to be renewed. And that's why we need God to instruct our minds through His Word. It doesn't just instruct us, though. Night, it corrects us. Verse 16 says it is profitable for reproof and correction, meaning simply this. If you're reading the Bible, and you've never thought to yourself, 
I'm doing this wrong or thinking about this wrong, then you are either God or you have mistaken yourself to be Him. Scripture corrects us. It picks us up and turns us around. It brings conviction and truth into our rebellion and lies. Tenth, Scripture disciples us to be righteous. That's what verse 16 says. It's profitable for training in righteousness. If you want to live a life of practical righteousness... You've got to know God's Word, and it will be your guide. And 11th, it equips us for service. The Scriptures are profitable for teaching and for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. To what end? So that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. So the man of God may be complete, so we may be mature. God has called us to use our lives for Him and others, and the Scriptures are our guide for how to do that. What we see here are lots of observations. Eleven from the text. You could probably, if you studied it this week, find more, and I'd encourage you to do that. But what do those observations mean for our day-to-day life as believers, and how do those observations help us to fight against the enemy's lies? Secondly, I want to consider together five applications from this text. Five applications from those 11 observations. The first application is this. Scripture is our ultimate authority. Scripture must be our ultimate authority. As Creator God, God is the source of all truth. He is the standard of all truth. And therefore, God is the ultimate authority. But since Scripture is His breathed out and inspired Word, the Bible carries ultimate authority for what is true and what is right and what is good and what is beautiful. And that means that this revelation from God is what every other authority and every other influence in your life must bow down to, must submit to, and must conform to. Now we should be able to say, yeah, The Bible's most important, and yet so many of us are prone to let other things be more authoritative in our lives and our thinking. Some allow their traditions and their upbringing to compete for authority with God's Word, ignoring what God's Word says, twisting it, and even denying what God has clearly said in order to maintain the status quo of what they've been taught or what they are used to But that can't be if the Bible's our ultimate authority. Listen, at the end of the day, we should all honor our grandma and grandpa. We should. And as a general rule, if they're wise, they're going to give you lots and lots of counsel that is good. But if at the end of the day you come to a point where you have to decide to go with what Scripture says or what grandma says, you should side with Scripture. Don't stone me after the service, grandmas. 
Some allow traditions and upbringing to be their ultimate authority. Some allow religious experiences that they've had, feelings, emotions, and instincts to compete with God's Word for authority. But we must side with Scripture, not our changing feelings and our unverifiable spiritual experiences. If you experience something, but it goes against what God's Word says, it probably wasn't God that you experienced. Traditions and experiences must bow to Scripture for authority in our lives. Some allow the education they've received or the worldly discipleship that they have received to shape the worldview they have and also shape their interpretation of Scripture. But listen, there are many very, very intelligent fools who have PhDs, positions of influence, and large platforms in their fields of study, in their fields of politics, and in their fields of media. So we must side with Scripture, not the so-called experts. At the end of the day, we must never stand above the text of Scripture and pick and choose what we like. We must never read Scripture through the lens of our traditions or our experiences or our worldview, whatever they may be, but instead we should in humility sit under the Word of God and let it shape our traditions. Let it help us interpret our experiences and let it determine what worldview we hold to. Scripture is our ultimate authority. Second, Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is sufficient. It is enough. It is what God has chosen to give to us, and it is all we need to be saved. It is all we need to know what God calls us to do and calls us to be. Scripture is sufficient to help us follow the path God wants us to follow. Many today are living their lives constantly on the lookout for signs from God, mystical experiences, and riding in the sky to figure out what it is God wants them to do. But instead of treating God as one who loves to play hide-and-seek with His children, we should be thankful that He has spoken and that He has revealed Himself and His will to us through His written Word. Instead of us living our lives putting God to the test and laying out fleeces and trying to find His hidden will for our future before we make a decision, we need to learn how to be a people who can use some sanctified common sense. He's given us His Word. He's surrounded us with other believers. He calls us to live in prayerful community together. He calls us to submit to that Word together. So we should prayerfully read the Word of God, seek godly counsel from people who value the Word of God, and then we should act with confident faith because the Scriptures are sufficient to help us follow the path God has for us. 
They're also sufficient to help us grow up in the faith, to help us change, and to help us help and counsel others. If you read Scripture long enough, you will find again and again that Scripture speaks into our hearts. Scripture gets in our business. It gets under the surface of our lives. It exposes the lies that we're believing, and it gives us the ammunition of truth that we can replace those lies with. No matter what you're facing, the Scriptures are sufficient, and they are are the remedy to help you grow, to help you change, and to help sustain you through that storm. Scripture is the root of all true and biblical counsel that we can provide to others or that we can preach to ourselves. Scripture is sufficient also to help us know doctrinal truth. Scripture's sufficiency helps us to not have to live our lives running for theological answers outside of the Bible. Now listen, we've got freedom to read Christian books, to seek Christian counsel, even to watch Christian shows and entertainment. But listen to me. We need to make sure we have right in our hearts and our minds that it is the Bible alone that is true and the sufficient source for us to know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what he calls us to. We don't have to supplement it, and we must never equate or elevate other types of literature or media with the authority of God's Word. What that means is this. You shouldn't build your theology about any specific topic about someone's private experience and revelation they had. You should instead say, what's the Bible say about that topic? You shouldn't seek mystical private revelations from God and then when you feel like He's given them to you, equate those with Scripture. If you find yourself saying, I know I have the Bible, comma, but I want something more, you should rethink that statement and go read your Bible. God has spoken to us in His Word. And if whatever mystical revelation you have contradicts God's Word, know this, it wasn't God who gave it to you. Because God is a God of unity and of order. He wants us to know His Word is sufficient. We should also not think that retellings of Bible stories, whether they're in a book we read or a show we watch or a movie or anything else, are equal with Scripture or are always accurate in their representations. Go to the source. The Scriptures are sufficient to know what is doctrinally true. We need to build our lives. We need to build our decision-making. We need to build the biblical counsel we offer others, and we need to build our theology on the sufficient Scriptures which give us all we need for life and godliness. We've seen as these applications unfold that Scripture is our ultimate authority. Scripture is sufficient. Third, we see that Scripture has a meaning. Scripture has a meaning. You ever said or been in a study where someone says, you know, what this means to me is, 
and then they finish it? We probably all have. We're probably all guilty of saying that at some points. And usually what we mean is, is this is how this applies into my situation in my life. But many of us speak and even think as if Scripture has lots of different meanings and all you need to do is find your personal meaning. But friends, listen, I'm not trying to be ugly here. Scripture has a meaning that has nothing to do with you and me. God cares about us, but our interpretation of the Scriptures and how it hits us and how it makes us feel is not the meaning of Scripture. The meaning is found how? By identifying the original author's intention, the original author's purpose. The meaning is what Moses meant what he was aiming for when he wrote Exodus. It's what Isaiah meant in his prophecy, what Mark meant in his gospel, what Paul meant in his letters. These are men who were inspired by God, writing into specific situations and using words with specific meanings. And they did this because they had specific intentions and aims in mind. And that means if you want to know what God's Word means, what you have to do is consider the grammar used, the words and their meanings used, the historical context, the audience that's being addressed, what was written immediately before this and immediately after it, and how this fits into the big story of the Bible. That might seem overwhelming, but if I was going to sum all that up, you can just say this. In biblical interpretation, context is king. The context is king. May we not be a people who rip Bible verses out of their original context and then proof text them to do what we want. Oh no. Let us be a people who value the Holy Scriptures so much that we say, I want to know the mind and heart and purpose of God, the mind and heart and purpose of the original author. Because, friends, it doesn't matter what Scripture means to you and I if we haven't first figured out what it meant to the ones who wrote it and to the authors who inspired it. Scripture has a meaning. Fourth truth. Scripture is all pointing to Jesus. Scripture is all pointing to Jesus. So often we treat the Bible like Aesop's fables, as if it's just a ton of tales of morality that teach us lessons. Do this. Don't do this. Be like this guy. Don't be like this guy. And don't get me wrong, there are many examples worth following and many examples worth avoiding that we would be wise to consider from the Bible. But Scripture is more than just a ton of disconnected stories to entertain us and to educate us. Instead, what Scripture is, it is one big story displaying the purposes of God to set His love on His covenant people through His Son, Jesus. It's one big story that is pointing to and climaxing in the person and work of our Savior, Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, 
After his death and before his public resurrection, Jesus appeared to two of his followers who were traveling out of Jerusalem. They were traveling on a road to a village called Emmaus. And these men were kept from recognizing Jesus as they spoke to him. But what the text tells us is that Jesus began to explain to these sad and confused men how all of God's law and all of the prophets and all of the writings, another way of saying all of the Old Testament, had pointed forward to Jesus, the coming Savior. And when that conversation ended, and when Jesus disappeared, the two men turned to one another and they said, Did not our hearts burn within us as he opened up to us the Scriptures? When they saw the big plan of God, who had made promises that had pointed forward to our redemption through Jesus all along, these men who had never seen the Bible read that way were astonished and in awe, blown away by the big story of the Bible. And friends, I hope you know that what was said in Luke 24 is still true today. Jesus is the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15 who came to crush the head of the seed of the serpent and roll back the curses of sin so that we could go back to the presence of God in Eden. Jesus is the descendant from Abraham in Genesis 12 through whom all the nations would be blessed. Jesus is the descendant of Judah from Genesis 49 through whom and from whom the scepter of kingship would never depart. He's the descendant of David from 2 Samuel 7 who would rule as a righteous king on the throne of God forever and ever. Jesus is the one who ushers in the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 so that the people of God will have the law of God written on their hearts and they will be indwelt by the Spirit of God. God. Jesus is the sacrifice that all the sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed forward to. That one back in Eden that had to be sacrificed in order for Adam and Eve's guilt to be covered, for their shame to be covered, that pointed us forward to Jesus. The one on Mount Moriah when Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, but God provided a substitute. It points us to Jesus. Jesus is the great Passover lamb from Exodus 11 and 12 who died in the place of the firstborn of Israel. He is the greater day of atonement from Leviticus 16 that made a way for sinners to dwell in the presence of a holy God. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who came to bear our iniquity and transgression and to go under the judgment of God so that we could be pardoned and set Jesus is the greater ark that saves us from the flood of God's judgment so that God's weapon of war, his bow, can be pointed away from the earth. He is the greater Joseph who was rejected by his own, fled temptation, and yet still saved the very ones who were sinned against him. He is the greater Moses who works to lead us out of a spiritual exodus that we could never set our free 
free ourselves free from. He's the greater Joshua who leads his people to a greater promised land. He is the greater Samson who sacrifices himself to defeat the enemies of God and yet does that at the cost of his life. He is the greater David who trusts God and defeats the enemy of God so that the anxious and fearful Israelites can go and win the victory knowing the victory has already been won. He is the greater tabernacle, the presence of God drawn near to us in the flesh. He is the greater prophet of Deuteronomy 18 whose words are the very words of God. He is the greater high priest who Hebrews tells us can sufficiently and eternally atone for our sin and intercede for his people. He is the greater high king who is seated on the throne forever and ever, which is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. The scriptures are all about Jesus. They're pointing us forward to Jesus. They're looking back for us at Jesus. That is something that should make our hearts burn with joy when we see the scriptures opened up. We see scriptures are ultimate authority. It's sufficient. It has a meaning at all points to Jesus. And fifth, Scripture is the sword that God saves and sanctifies with. Scripture is the only way that we can know the gospel, know the character of God, know the problem of sin, know the person and work of Christ, and know the right response. And that means that we need the truth of Scripture in order to be saved. The Scriptures are the weapon God uses to save us, but also the weapon God uses to sanctify us. The Bible fixes our eyes on our Savior. The Bible reveals the heart and character of God. The Bible shows us the standards of God. The Bible brings us gospel comfort when we are afflicted, but it also brings us gospel conviction when we are comfortably living in our sin. The Bible teaches us truth. It corrects our unrighteousness. It renews our minds. It transforms our lives. It repairs our broken worldviews. And it speaks into the issues that we face day by day. The Scriptures lay bare our hearts, expose our idols, and point us to the truth that Jesus is better. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.12 that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Psalm 19 tells us that when we read the Word of God, that what it does for us is it will revive the soul of those who are weary. It will make wise the simple. It will rejoice the heart 
heart that is downtrodden. It will enlighten the eyes that are blinded. God's Word lasts forever. It is more valuable, more desirable than the immeasurable riches this world offers us and more delicious than the tastiest delicacy that you can imagine. Psalm 119 tells us that the man who stores up God's Word in his heart is empowered to be holy and not to sin against God. Psalm 1 says that the blessed man is the one who delights in the law of God and meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Ephesians 4 says that the church, the people of God, will grow up into unity and maturity. How? As they speak the truth of God's Word in love to one another. Friends, if we're going to grow up spiritually, if we're going to finish our race, then we must be a people who are praying the Bible and singing the Bible and reading the Bible and meditating on the Bible and memorizing the Bible and studying the Bible and speaking and discussing the Bible and applying the Bible and obeying the Bible. If we will grow up in the faith, we have to be a Bible people who are being transformed by truth. The Bible's a big deal. It's a big deal. That's why Paul says in closing in Ephesians chapter 6, you know this passage, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Paul says the Christian life is not a vacation, but it is a war. And your enemy longs to devour and destroy your soul. And his primary tactic is to deceive you with lies and to accuse you as the great accuser. And that enemy, listen to me, he knows what the Bible says. He quoted it to Jesus out of context to try to get him to rebel against God. He questioned what God said to Adam and Eve and reinterpreted it and questioned the character of God for saying it in the garden. And friends, his tactics haven't changed. Look at me. What he wants more than anything is for us to be bored by the Bible, ignorant of what the Bible says, distracted from the Bible, and deceived about what it means. And if we don't have 
have this word in our hearts and our minds, then friends, we are showing up to a battle and we don't have any bullets. Prioritizing God's word in your life is necessary, not optional, if we will put down Satan's lies. And at the root of all those lies that are lobbed daily like grenades at us all is this that God couldn't possibly love you as messed up as you are. That there is no way that you can truly be forgiven for what you've done in the past or what you're struggling with right now. That there's no way that you can change or be used by God. But friends, into those devilish lies comes beautiful truth set to a beautiful tune that I hope you all know. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong, they are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Why? The Bible tells me so. Friends, the truth of God's Word is the only way that we can find rest for our anxious souls, that we can find salvation that never fails, that we can find a holiness that leads to a transformed life, and that we can find weapons to defeat every lie Satan throws at us. Build your life on God's Word, and you can defeat any lie, face any storm, stand against any enemy, and you can finish the race that God has called us all to. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You this morning for Your undeserved grace. We thank You for the truth found in Scripture. We thank you that we can know you because you have revealed yourself to us. We ask you, God, to work and move in our hearts and lives. We ask you, God, to help us to value and prioritize that word that you have given. And we ask you, God, to help us to fight the lies that are thrown at us every day. Help us, Lord, to be a Bible people who stand on the truth and are transformed by it. Lord God, I pray right now as we prepare to sing and to respond, and as even we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper in a few moments, God, that you will speak and move through us. Hear the cries of our hearts.
of the gospel. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.